0: This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. Today my guest is Robert Dagoni. We'll be discussing his latest thriller, The Last Agent, the second book in his Charles Jenkins series. The novel's non-stop, fast-paced plot revolves around the ultimate heist, the exfiltration of the undercover Russian operative who once saved Jenkins' life. Every step of the way, from Moscow to Scandinavia to the open ocean, Jenkins is hunted by a brutal Russian agent on a killer quest of his own. This is my first Charles Jenkins book, and I have to tell you, I was riveted because it's right up my alley. I love spy novels, and I, you know, ate it up.
1: This book was just a chase from start to finish. It was just go go go.
0: Yeah, I uh, I have to tell you, I was thinking about the movie, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Because I was thinking, okay, what else can he throw in the mix? What else can he throw in the mix? And then, of course, you threw in a ton of things that I would have never thought to put into the mix. But then I saw how methodical your mind was working about. Okay, first getting into the country, and then getting out of the country. Going back to the very first book. I know that, you know, even though I didn't have a chance to read it, I recognize that you had a lot of characters reappear, but there were wonderful mm-hmm. twists to how they played into the plot. Like you've got Matt Lamore who has to, you know, convince Jenkins to go back into the cold. You've got Paulina and she saved Charles, you know, when he was in Russia and now he feels obligated to return the favor. And I loved uh, Victor Fedorov. I just loved him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's a great character.
0: He is. And, you know, again, the twist. He, before, he was the Russian FSB operative who chased Jenkins. And now Jenkins needs him to help him find Paulina and hopefully pull her out of there. And then, of course, the whole prison. How's it pronounced? Oh, um,
1: it's Lefortova.
0: Ooh, Lefortova prison. Okay. Um, so... You've kind of given everybody sort of a 45-degree twist on their their motive to stay in the game and stay in the plot. How did this plot come to you? I'm just curious.
1: Well, when I wrote the first book uh, and turned it in, my editor said to me, You know, God, this is, this is a great story, and he's a great character, and all these characters are great characters. You know, would you want to do a continuing series? And I said, I really did. I thought it was going to be kind of a standalone. And I said, But no, I, I'd love to do one. And he said, Do you have any ideas? And I said, um, Well, you know, it would really take something powerful to get him to go back into Russia. And originally, Paulina in the first book, I left an ambiguity, but the ambiguity was clearly that she died for him. And I went back to the first book and I went to the chapter and I said to Gracie, Gracie, if we take out this last paragraph of this chapter, then it's completely ambiguous whether Paulina lived or died. And the second book could be about, you know, that she might very well be alive and in Russian hands and Jenkins would feel obligated to go back and get her. And she was like, I love it. And I said, I can even picture a scenario where I get to bring back Victor Fedorov and she loved it even more. So, You know, it was really a kind of a a plot that, I don't want to say it came about as a necessity, but it came about because I wanted to continue to write the character. And, you know, I'm working on the third book now, and really I'm just doing research right now. But it's sort of the same principle. I mean, the primary consideration is why would Jenkins go back in? Right. Why would he go back in a third time? Right. And so that was really the main consideration for me was, why would he go back in the second time? And and once I had a, a a reason that I knew he would do it, the plot just kind of fell into place.
0: Right. Right. I also love the way that you you never give short shrift to the family dynamic. Uh, you've done this also in previous series. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important because it, it shows a, a fully rounded protagonist. For example, in Jenkinson's case, his wife, Alex, and his son, CJ, they, of course, have went through the first book with him, and they went through the first trial with him, and, you know, him being considered someone who committed treason, and and they have to kind of internalize why he would even ever want to go back. Right. How do you internalize it so that it comes back out on the page?
1: Well, you know, family has always been extremely important to me. I was raised in a terrific family and, and I've been blessed to have a great family in my adult life. And you don't make decisions in a vacuum um, when you are married and you have kids and you're in a good relationship and have a good family dynamic. You always are making you know, decisions that are best for your family. At the same time, we all are individuals and we all live individual lives. And the real trick is balancing the two of those. So you have someone like Jenkins that is extremely skilled and has a really high moral and ethical standard. And, you know, this is a situation that he just can't allow someone that put their life on the line so that he could live, so that he could be there for his family. He can't just let her die. And that's really where the conflict comes into the story is that he has a lot to lose. Um, This is not just a situation where he's single, he has no relationship, uh, he has no kids, he has nothing, and, and he's off you know, doing something, sort of like James Bond. I mean, if you watch the James Bond movies, a lot of times Bond will, will get into a serious relationship with one of the women. And I believe the reason they do that is so that there is some conflict to if James Bond dies. And I don't think that's as strong as the situations like Charles Jenkins and in talking to some of my sources. This is what a lot of CIA officers face. I remember there was a a man who lived on our street growing up, and I didn't know it at the time, but I'm positive now that he was CIA because we used to go to the house. The mother was an older, they were older couple, and the the mother was really a wonderful lady and she'd make cookies and things like that. And you'd go to the house and he'd always have a suitcase packed. Always. There will always be a suitcase there. And, um, I, you know, he said, say, well, that's Mr. Pete's, and okay. yeah, that's his suitcase. Well, is he going on a trip? Well, you don't know. I don't know. You know, every once in a while he has to go on a trip for business. And what does he do? Well, he, you know, he works in the government. You know, they, she would never tell us, but she didn't know. I mean, these, and, and a lot of these guys will tell you that is for the benefit of the family, they can't tell the family where they're going or how long they're going to be gone or any of those things. And so it's a really difficult relationship. And when I went back to Langley years ago with a group of people from Thriller Fest, you know, it was really interesting because in talking to them, that's one of the things that they said. It's hard to have a a relationship with somebody because you can't tell them what you really do for a living. And then it's hard to be married because there's just a tremendous amount of pressure on you and, um, and on your spouse. And so a lot of CIA officers end up marrying CIA officers for that very reason. So the family dynamic is it's really important. Now, Alex is former CIA, so she understands, and she understands the situation better than most spouses would understand. And at the end of the book, I allow that understanding to come out so that I have the ability to continue to write the series, because that's going to be the difficulty going forward is why is he doing this? Why is he putting his family at risk? And it's always going to have to be something deeper than money. It's going to have to be something that really pings at his moral and ethical guidelines, if you will, that's going to have to say, no, this is wrong. I need to do something about it.
0: Right, right. I want to move to a not so beautiful topic, which is Adam Efimov. (laughs) yeah <laughs> You know we just took a one eighty there, um because you know he's your sadistic, very sadistic antagonist. I mean, he is so sadistic that even though he grew up with Putin, even Putin can't stomach him. <laughs> so catching Jenkins because he is on Jenkins' tail, he hopes will put him back in Putin's good graces. Talk to me a little bit about creating such a dark, sick character. And also, you know, how you use him in this novel.
1: Well, so in the first book, the character was Victor Fedorov. And Fedorov, I tried to make very human. He's sort of the Russian Charles Jenkins. He's a father and he's divorced for all the reasons I talked about. You know, he he can't talk about his job. He can't do any of this. So he's estranged from his wife. He's estranged from his daughters. But They still exist, and they still are are there. There's something that pings at him. So Victor is not a bad guy. He's just a guy that's trying to do his job. And he sort of respects Jenkins, and and Jenkins sort of respects him, because some of my sources would say that there were certain KGB agents when they were CIA officers that they really respected, uh, because they— you know, they were doing their job as, to the fullest extent that, that the CIA officer was doing his job. So he was an antagonist, but he wasn't a bad guy. And when I wrote the second book, I knew I had to sort of do something different. I couldn't just come up with another FSB officer. I needed something that the reader could really root against. And so Epimov sort of came to me, and he just began to flush himself out. You know, the whole thing about being a bricklayer with his father. And that's why he has such powerful hands and powerful arms. And it's weird the way that the subconscious works and that characters come to us as writers. But he was just a guy that just slowly began to develop and and come to me. I'm working on the third novel right now. and And I think I'm going to do something again completely different. It's really interesting. A lot of this comes through research, you know, reading books on the subject. Characters will begin to sort of crystallize. But really, the bottom line is, I just knew I needed someone different than Viktor Fedorov. And when Efimov came into my conscious with some clarity, I recognized that he was definitely a bad guy.
0: Right, right. Um, I have to tell you, speaking of research, when you had us in the prison, you did a real deep dive to understand what goes on in a dank hole like that. Did you have a good source for that? Because I I was really blown away.
1: I didn't have a good source on Lefortovo. There's really almost nothing out there on Lefortovo. I was hoping that I could find an American that had been kept there. And so I found a few things to give me some idea of, you know, the structure of it and what took place there and what went on there. But I really found a better book doing the research I'm doing for the third novel that talked a little bit more about leper but there wasn't a lot there other than to say that it was really a black hole that when you went in there you disappeared and um you were lucky if if anyone ever saw you again the really hard part for me was i don't outline and so you know here i am where where would she be taken well she'd definitely be taken to leper because It's close to Lubyanka, and they'd want to be totally, you know, questioning her and questioning her and questioning her before they killed her. And it's a political prison and it's, you know, awful. And that's where she would go. And I just went right along with it. And boom, there she was. And then I stopped for a minute and I went, well, how the hell does he get her out? And I probably spent three or four days just staring at my computer and trying to come up with different scenarios that Jenkins gets her out of Lefortovo prison, and none of them work. And then as often happens for us when we're you know puzzling and puzzling and puzzling, I woke up in the middle of the night, and suddenly, a lot of times, it's an easier solution than, than you think. And I came up with the whole scenario that I painted in the book on how Jenkins could potentially get her out. Ironically, doing additional research for this third book, I found out that, you know what, that is one of the ways that people get out. So I felt sort of vindicated for it. What's interesting is that a lot of times I will do additional research after the book is out for the next book. And a lot of times that will happen. So for instance, there's a point in the story where Jenkins uses a magic trick. He teaches Victor Fedorov a magic trick to get something into the prison. And ironically, you know, I was thinking to myself, is this going to be too far-fetched? Is this going to be too far-fetched? It's actually part of a CIA officer's training used to be they would bring in a magician to teach them sleight of hand.
0: <laughs>
1: and, you know, so that when they were doing brush buys where they would drop something in somebody's pocket as they passed them, or if you're trying to throw something in someone's car as they were driving past them, all these different things, if they had something and someone was coming to get them the sleight of hand that they would use to try to make the object disappear. That is something that CIA officers are trained to do. They bring in magicians to what, well, what used to be called um, the farm. They would bring them into the farm to teach young officers sleight of hand. So I think a lot of times we think we're being really slick, but we're not, you know, we really can't make up a lot of this stuff because a lot of this stuff in, in actuality is, is true.
0: Right. If we had thought about it, somebody had to think about it before us.
1: <laughs> yeah, without doubt. Without a doubt.
0: <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, um, the obviously, the last third of the heist is, can they get out of Russia? And there we go with the, you know, trains, planes, and automobiles. <laughs> you know, they get out of Russia. And I thought about the research that you did on the Russian train system. And then, of course you know, where would be the safest place that they could leave the border? And, you know, how would they do that? And the whole thing about the decoys was just right. brilliant and beautiful the way you ran it in various locations, too. No, thanks. I assume that that came out of some of your research.
1: So in, t- in talking to the CIA officers that I talked to, you know, one of the things that they emphasized is that if you have to shoot, that's never the end. That's actually the beginning of the problem. And so most CIA officers don't even carry a, a weapon. They don't carry a gun. They never had. And so really, what their job is is to accomplish things without the other side knowing that they that they ever did anything. You know, it's not the James Bond run and shoot and and all that stuff. It's really much more clandestine. It's trying to look as ordinary as possible so that you can find three minutes of time where you become not ordinary. You slip you, all the people that are following you, and that's when you're able to accomplish something. So one of the things that they do a lot of is they have these different types of decoys. And you know, one of the decoys they used to use a lot of was two people would walk out of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, for instance, And they'd get into a car, and they'd drive away, and they'd be followed by, you know, three teams of KGB agents. And one guy would have a briefcase, and he'd put it on the seat between him and the driver. And they would know where they were going, and they'd make a right turn, and then they'd make another right turn. And if you made two right turns in a row, you got about 30 seconds of distance between yourself and the car that was following you. And in that 30 seconds, the guy in the passenger seat would roll out of the car as it was still driving into like bushes or something. The driver would then press a button on the briefcase and a cutout would pop up in the car. (laughs) And by manipulating certain strings or buttons, we could actually get the cutout to move. So it would look like the guy was still in the car. The guy who got out of the car would have a disguise. So he'd immediately get out of the car, and if he had enough time, he'd be able to put on a mask, one of the the masks that you see like in Mission Impossible or whatever, or a hat, glasses, a beard, whatever it was. And in the span of about 30 seconds, he'd be able to transform himself into a just old Russian woman with a shopping cart. So a lot of it was misdirection, you know, getting enough misdirection to give yourself enough time to to be able to accomplish something because you were, everything you did, you were watched. You were constantly watched.
0: That's hilarious. That's hilarious. But I'm also very excited that you actually might have a TV deal with this. Should I say that?
1: Yeah, no, um, this was actually something that we agreed to about a year ago, but there was a couple of things that happened. One was COVID. And um, nothing in Hollywood was getting produced. Everything was shut down. So there was no rush for anybody to sign any agreements. And then um, new attorneys were brought in on the other side, and, and that kind of set things back a little bit. But it looks like we finally have a deal. They seem to be very excited about it. They were a year ago. They seem to still be. And basically, they bought the first two books. So they bought The Eighth Sister and The Last Agent. And. When I talked uh, with the head of the, the studio last year, what she was talking about was more of a TV series than a major motion picture because there's just so much material.
0: Right. I think it's more lucrative for you, I would imagine. I don't know. Well, it'd be
1: very hard to take that, the Ace Sister, for instance, and turn that into a movie script. I mean, you could do it. You could. You could. But you'd have to probably cut out the trial at the end of the book and all those kind of things. And She seemed um, really excited about the trial sort of being the framework to tell the story, you know, almost open with him being in custody and going into the courtroom for the first time and then flashing back about how did he get here, right, which would really be a a terrific dynamic because a lot of things have since come into play. One, of course, is that Charles Jenkins is an African-American man, and um, you see an African-American man on television, right, and because of our prison system, et cetera. You know, your initial thought is he's not going to get any breaks. He's being tried for espionage. So, you know, you're immediately going to be against him. And it's not until you go through the movie and you see what happened to him and how did he get there that you you begin to realize, oh, my God, this guy really got the short shaft twice. So a lot of things really kind of happened. And um, the framework she had was, was really, I thought, brilliant. So um, at the time, they were talking about a TV series you know, where you could have six or seven episodes type of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what's so interesting about what you said? As most good producers will do, uh, this producer seems to have flipped it on its head. You know, you look at it as a novelist. She's looking at it visually as, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a good showrunner would do, where you're you're looking at it and yeah. going, oh, my God, this is where we start. And then we go into his backstory and how he got there.
1: Right. Because what they wanted to do is they wanted to make sure that you didn't have this disjointed, really high energy chase scene followed by a trial, which by its very nature is just much less interesting, et cetera. And uh, I thought it was just brilliant. When she talked to me about it, I just said, where were you when I was writing the novel? And she laughed and said sort of what you said, which was, you know, novelists, you really probably wouldn't want to start it that way because more than anything, you might just be confusing the reader. But TV is a different medium, so they, they do look at things differently.
0: Right, right. So um, any interest in uh, Tracy Crosswhite in Hollywood? Yeah. You know, as,
1: as things go, we then got a deal with Sam Hell, and there's a, really a perfect woman, very high-profile lady out there right now with some real heavy credentials that's working on uh, trying to put together a team, directors, producers, et cetera. And, you know, I think this thing is one of the things that starts to snowball a little bit. Word gets out, and they, you know, everybody in the industry gets all the same literature, magazines, et cetera. And, and so I'm sure the question was wait a minute, who is this guy? And so we did get an inquiry just a few days ago Does anybody own the rights to the Tracy Crosswhite series? And what I do is I just pass those along. And I really don't give them much more thought than that. I just pass them along. And, um, you know, if uh, if something comes of it, then terrific. But if nothing comes of it, it really doesn't change what I do for a living and what I really enjoy doing, which is to write novels. At some point in the process, you know, I was asked, well, would you be interested in writing the screenplay? And my answer was no, uh, because, you know, two two reasons. One is it would take time away from what I really love to do, which is to write novels. And two, it's kind of arrogant, I think. I'm sure there are some authors out there that, have that ability. Maybe they took screenwriting classes when they were in school or whatever, but I would much rather have an A-list screenwriter write the screenplay because people are going to pay a lot more attention to somebody that has some credentials to her name than they are to some guy that they've never heard of before.
0: I also think they throw that little bone out sort of as an ego thing to you. You know what I'm saying? They're like, oh, let's see if he bones. And then they're going to tear it apart anyway because somebody wants the WGA credit. (laughs)
1: You know, it's not going to be,
0: you're not going to get it. They're going to get the credit.
1: Yeah. So I just said, I'd rather you found the best person possible to write the story and then let her do what she does best. Let her do her job.
0: Right, right. Um, You know, our books are like our babies and it's hard to choose which book we love more, which characters we love more, which series we love more. Where does this fall in your, you know, Sophie's Choice hierarchy?
1: Well. I have a real fondness for Sam Hell. Sam Hell is a character that, you know, I love. Tracy Crosswhite is a character that really changed my life and changed the lives of my family. And so there's a real strong feeling I have for Tracy because of that. Charles Jenkins is just a lot of fun to write, just a lot of fun to come up with the ideas. It means more to me because Charles Jenkins was my law school roommate. And I used to tell him years ago, I said, one day I'm gonna make you larger than life. And he'd laugh at me and say, yeah, right. Because he was kind of a larger than life character. I mean, he's exactly the guy in the book. So, you know, it, the book has meaning to me because of him. They're different and you, you have to learn to accept them and to love them for who they are.
0: Right. You can order Robert Dagoni's novel, The Last Agent, right now through Amazon. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.